Welcome to Chromodiversity, a podcast for clinicians, therapists, and families about common genetic diversity in children and adults. Hi, I'm Elliot Pollack, founder of MyXXY Chromodiversity Foundation, and I'll be your host. In this episode, you'll hear a fascinating conversation with Anita Deutsch from Australia. Anita is a clinical nurse and educator at Peninsula Health. She has a Bachelor of Nursing from University of Tasmania, a postdoc in neuroscience, and was once a corporal in the Army Reserves as a medic. Perhaps not a bad preparation for what came next. Anita also happens to have three boys with Kleinfelters, an 11-year-old and 9-year-old identical twins. If having one child with an extra 47th chromosome is relatively common and can happen to anyone, to have three is extraordinarily unlikely, especially since it's a spontaneous genetic variation that's not inherited from parents. Not only does this give Anita rare first-hand experience of the high variability and one key similarity in children growing up with Kleinfelters, it also provides her with a unique window on how different educational approaches can result in different outcomes between two genetically identical twins with an extra X. Beyond her own background in parenting, Anita also has deep experience supporting other parents with children who have chromosomal variations through her pro bono work for the Australian chapter of AXIS, the Association for X and Y Variations. Hello, Anita. Thank you for taking time out to be with us today. Before we dive in, can you tell us a little more about your professional background? So I'm a registered nurse. I've been nursing for 21 years now. Um, my passion is neurosciences. So I did a postgraduate studies in neuroscience, neurology, stroke ward, mixed medical specialty, found my love of renal in that time and endocrinology and all wonderful things. Now my passion is around education. So I'm a clinical nurse specialist, clinical educator in medical specialty wards, and I've migrated back to neurology. Uh, how old were your boys when you found out that they have a genetic difference and how did you find out? Obviously, I've got three children with Klinefelter syndrome, XXY. Um, so my oldest was only two days old. No issues during pregnancy. The doctor walked in and I just said, oh, I'm just so glad I've got a healthy baby. And there was a look in his eyes and I went, something's wrong. They rushed me off with this baby in my arms, off for brain scans, for abdominal scans, and said, oh, you know, he's got all the lobes of his brain. They didn't know I was a nurse, especially not a neurology nurse, mm -hmm. that I study lobes of the brain. They said, oh, he's got all his organs, that's great. But they didn't tell me anything. They just pretended this was normal procedure, and I knew it wasn't. Uh, they left the notes in my room one night and so I sat there furiously reading these notes and they'd written a diagnosis down that they thought that he wouldn't survive. So we waited two days for his genetic testing to come back. A genetic counsellor came in and spoke to us and was laughing and I said, oh, well, what's going on they still didn't tell me they thought he wouldn't survive and they said oh don't worry it's just Kleinfelder's syndrome you know 
now he's got an extra X chromosome. So I immediately said, oh, is that like Down syndrome? Completely ignorant, even though I'd been nursing for quite a number of years. What was the physical manifestation at two days old? Because that's not very typical. In Australia, they only do pregnancy scans at, you know, your last one's really 20 weeks. Um, We chose not to do any genetic testing or anything during pregnancy. We were just happy to have a baby. So when he was born, not that I noticed, he had quite dysmorphic features in his face, um, quite large eyes, and that was their concern, that he had dysmorphic features. But as a new mum, I didn't notice that. The genetic diagnosis was provided to you of Kleinfelter's. How did that make you feel? Look, I think I was a bit confused because the reaction of the genetic counsellor walked in and was so happy and was laughing, but then I felt okay. And the genetic counselling session was a little awkward because it was a doctor that I had previously worked with, Mm -hmm. Uh, but he was extremely positive. We got our booklet and went on our way and because he met all his milestones, it wasn't, we enjoyed, really enjoyed him as a baby, didn't have many concerns unlike the second diagnosis. And what do you understand today about this genetic difference? Is there additional information that you've gained that actually um, you didn't have in the first counselling session? I mean, 100% as a parent, obviously, of three children, I've poured a lot of um, time into trying to understand but also realising that information on Google is shocking. So I did pour a lot of my energy into volunteering for an association in Australia and setting up a better website. I mean, I was ignorant. Even as a nurse, I had never heard of it. And now I realise that it's such a spectrum. What happened next after your first child? Well, we had identical twins Uh and, you know, pregnancy was reasonable, no issues, born on time but probably a completely different presentation to our oldest, although sleep was a challenge. Very placid, looked quite vacant a lot of the time um, and didn't reach milestones like our oldest had, Um, didn't sit, didn't roll, and were quite happy just to lay and not really do a great deal. I had an inkling at about seven months that there was something that wasn't quite right. But everyone said, look, they're just twins, don't worry about it, they're going to be delayed. But there was something in me and I still to this day go, I really should have followed that gut instinct. But around 12, 13 months, the child maternal health nurse said, look, they've got significant low muscle tone they were still not crawling or rolling it was then they linked us in with a pediatrician and mentioned he was going to do a test for ks but it was really impossible that the three would have it that that's what the genetic lottery came up with yeah and look he rang the lab twice to say look i think you've got the wrong results 
Mm. This can't be possible. There's no rhyme, no reason. It's just happened. Only about 10% of children are diagnosed with an extra X before the age of 10. In Australia, it may be a little bit higher, but still it's low given that it's not very obvious and the differences can easily be um, ascribed to something else. That wasn't the case with your children. Are you happy that they were diagnosed so young? I mean, it's a huge advantage. Um, early intervention is the absolute key. Why is that? Because even for my oldest that had no language, motor delays, I still got him assessed by a speech therapist, a physiotherapist, just to make sure there wasn't things we could do. Uh, the twins, for example, once we started weekly physio, I would do exercises four to six times a day, were crawling within a week. At the time of diagnosis, we were told unlikely to ever run, jump, climb because of their significant low tone, pelvic instability, but they're phenomenal now. And if we hadn't have had those tools and, you know, speech therapy we did twice a day, when they started school, no one could understand them. Now in grade three, you can understand everything they say. So is what you're suggesting also with your um, background in neurophysiology that when such a difference is detected very young, the brain perhaps has the greatest capacity to um, adjust and um, that can change lifelong outcomes. Is that your sense? 100%. Um, our brain grows and develops till you're about 25. And I think we're also in a society of, oh, don't worry about it if they're not sitting on time or they're not crawling or they're not running. Let's just wait and see. But I'm quite the opposite. I'm like, well, if you see a challenge, why can't we help them? Why can't we put something in place to change that? because we've also got to realise that with or without a diagnosis, so many children actually need early intervention. And if we just delay that, it impacts their lives. Some adults I've interviewed um, who have genetic variation, such as an extra X, have said to me that they felt different from other kids growing up. Do you think your children feel different? I think it depends on the circle you have around you, whether there's that difference mm. and people embrace that. For example, school, I researched for a year to find a school that was really inclusive of all children, no matter what their challenges were. So I don't feel that they think they're different because they go to a school with people with Down syndrome, with this is a public school, you know, with nonverbal children with autism, people on crutches, in wheelchairs. But if I'd sent them to another school, it may have been a different path. Our circle of friends just uh, treat them like normal people. But this year, I think I've noticed more the importance of inclusive and individual learning for example my twins are pretty identical in terms of academic 
one of them, the teacher is very experienced but phenomenal, really embraces all the kids' diversities but nurtures their strengths and challenges and really encourages them. The other teacher, one of my twins, puts everyone in a box. You must learn like this. You must do this. One is absolutely thriving and the other does not want to go to school. Up until this year, they've been completely on par with their academic learning, but I have been and observed the way these teachers interact with the children because I do try and help out at the school and having that loving, nurturing, empowering teacher, you can see one of the kids like puff up and, and he's doing so well. But the other teachers very, you need to sit here, you need to do this, you need to inexperienced teacher, which you know, over time she'll learn and grow, but he is completely disengaged and he's, I think, my sense is he's been labelled as low IQ, which is actually incorrect. Mm -hmm. He is very, you know, his knowledge on things is incredible, an amazing reader, but he was given books to read two years lower than his reading ability. So he just wouldn't read. How did you go about choosing a school for your children? We didn't disclose their diagnosis at the time. I just said, well, how do you manage severe anxiety or depression? And it was the principal's answer that mm. gave me the answer to what, what school was the right. So some were easy to tick off or cross off straight away. But it was also talking about, oh, if they had additional needs and they let therapists into the school. A lot of schools in Australia won't, mm -hmm. but they embraced it. They could, OTs could go into the classroom, but they'd do small group work. They wouldn't just take your kid out of the class. They would leave him in the classroom so he was included in the learning, but they would grab another two kids. So it was social building as well as other things. I find it really interesting that you did not disclose the diagnosis because one might think, well, disclose the diagnosis and see what they say. Why did you not do that? I know even, as I said before, as a nurse, the awareness and knowledge is so poor. Mm. I wanted them to see who our children were. Mm. I wanted them to see their great qualities and them to have a plan for challenges. So, for example, my oldest, obviously, the first going to school was really around his severe anxiety but no speech language motor delays or anything like that. But I wanted them to get to know him. But I also in myself wanted to go, do I feel comfortable and safe disclosing their diagnosis? And once I got to know the teachers more, within that first year he was there, I sat down and said, well, actually, there's more going on. This is his diagnosis. And they said, well, it doesn't change how we're managing what's going on, which so was a positive thing. Which was positive. 
Um, it sounds like the approach that you managed to construct and dialogue together with the school was a needs-based approach. What are the potential needs rather than a diagnosis-based approach? Oh, this is what we need to do for that diagnosis. And I think then they don't individualise a child. They don't get to know the child. They don't get to look at their strengths and they don't hone in on their challenges. Can you tell me a little bit more about your children's strengths? Aldous is the kindest, you know. Well, they've all got amazing hearts, actually. So he's very sporty. Um, but interesting enough, the twins, particularly one of them, is an incredible skateboarder. He will drop in the deep end. People at the skate park with kids the same age have no idea that the challenges he's been through to get here, but he's phenomenal and people will stand back and go, wow, he's amazing. I think there's something in skateboarding. It's also a sense of achievement that their friends don't do. Not that they've said anything, but it's this, I've got this. What do you see related to their genetic difference in their strengths and in their challenges? And what do you see not necessarily related to the genetic chromosomal difference? And can you actually distinguish between the two? It's an interesting question. I think particularly for the twins, if they come last, it doesn't bother them. And this no fear is, oh, well, I'm just going to make it anyway. And... They've got this determination that a lot of kids don't have. So I think that's a positive because they know they might come last, but they don't care. They just want to get across the finish line. Mum, I went in the butterfly today. I nearly drowned. I come last, but I had fun. And I'm like, good on you. <laughs> um, my oldest is the opposite, very, very competitive, and he does well. So we've actually had to work <laughs> to bring him down and say it doesn't matter if you come second or third mm. because he's often up the top of the pack having an extra x does not mean you're always like this or you're always like that but do you see any commonalities things that are really seem to be similar between all three the biggest thing i would say is emotion control mm. and emotion regulation and I think also having three children within the one household with those emotion regulation challenges adds another layer. So even now we've worked very hard around that emotion regulation, but it's often like World War Three in our house. There's a lot of talk now about ADHD and autism being more common in children with an extra chromosome. Would you see something like that in them? The twins, very, very high energy until they're exhausted and they're asleep. So they have a diagnosis of ADHD. The autism one, I'm sitting on the fence even as a nurse because I think a lot of characteristics misdiagnosed. We went down the path for autism diagnosis for one of the twins and it was really to just get funding. I mean, I think from a parent perspective, you have to be positive or else you have dark days and you're like, this is not good and, and your brain takes you to places that 
are not healthy for yourself or your children, but there are sometimes you really have to sit back and go, well, actually, they do have challenges and that's okay. But we need help. Mm-hmm. So, and I think everywhere the funding, I know some places you get an automatic funding, but Australia is completely backwards with their NDIS system. They don't recognise KS. School funding don't recognise KS. So you really just have to look at your kids on the worst day ever and go, that is what I'm going with. Because I think as a parent we just want them to be okay Um, and to write down every challenge they have is very confronting. But if we don't do that, they often don't get the support they need. So we fought for eight months to get um, education support for Ollie and Kai in the school. Um, someone said, no, you won't get it. And I said, like hell, we will. And I found a teacher, assistant principal, that said, I will fight with you every step of the way. And we had some awful, awful um meetings of just talking there was nothing positive it was just talking all about struggles but I'm so grateful that I did that because if I didn't they wouldn't get an aid at school for their whole primary school years you mentioned early on some health issues how supportive have healthcare professionals been and um, how well, how knowledgeable? Look, and I think that's a, a space that most people, either individual or parents, struggle with. We were very, very fortunate that I put our name down for three paediatricians. Um, one had a massive wait list. They rang me one day and said, are you available tomorrow um, for an appointment? I said, yep, I'll be there. And he is actually head of paediatrics at one of the hospitals, very knowledgeable on KS. To find an endocrinologist is very difficult, but the paediatrician does link us in with the right people. But I know so many that have had issues. So we've been seeing him now for uh, yeah nine, eight, nine years, and we see him every six months. So... Mm-hmm. In terms of GPs and stuff, very difficult. <laughs> so. Very difficult, but fortunate when you find one, the rare bird who does have a very good knowledge yeah. or has experience. And I think sometimes it's also all looking at paediatrician, 100% you want someone knowledgeable, but if it's a psychologist or someone, you just want them to know the issues with your child. For example, mm-hmm. can they deal with anxiety, depression, that kind of thing. In terms of the ADHD, I think if you're given an early diagnosis but are having a diagnosis of KS, we're doing OT, speech, physio, group sessions, all this stuff, and I think it actually gives kids tools Mm -hmm. to learn how to manage their ADHD. But other children necessarily don't necessarily go to therapy for ADHD without another diagnosis. 
we're putting in so many strategies, you know, whether it's just a fidget toy, a weighted blanket, you know, giving them the choice. Yeah, you can sit on the chair or sit in the mat whenever you like. For example, one of the twins with a positive teacher, he's allowed to go and stand at the door and look, open the door, get a bit of fresh air and go and sit back down when he's when he needs to. The other one, no, you must sit, you must engage. And it's not working. What advice would you give to teachers? I think get to know the child. It's often not about the diagnosis. Every child is different, whether they have a diagnosis or not. And unless we look at an individual child's positive, what are they doing really well at? Look at their challenges and just look at that aspect of them. What advice would you give to healthcare professionals and doctors? Seeing if they're mentally and emotionally okay with their diagnosis and seeing whether they actually have the right support networks in place. Because often in hospital we presume that, oh, well, they've had this for their life, they must be linked into people. And just sitting down and saying, are you okay? Is there anything you need? Because we forget that they're people. You know, we're talking to individuals that may be struggling. And, you know, that lived experience, often all people want is for someone to understand where they're coming from. They don't want this medical jargon thrown at them and they don't want their chest listened to, their heart rate taken. They they just want to feel heard and that someone else, they're not alone. Because I think a lot of people with KS feel alone. Even as a parent, before I found a support network, I thought, oh, my gosh, no other child has this, even though I had three. What would you recommend to parents who learn, who've just learned of a diagnosis or detection, either before birth, at birth, or at any time during childhood? I would say your emotions are normal. A lot of people beat themselves up for feeling this enormous grief. Just letting people know that they have to write out those emotions. Completely normal and they've got to be okay with that. And also that it's going to be okay. You know, a lot of people even being on the helpline for our volunteer work, lots of phone calls, people are being told to terminate these so people are ringing already, ready to terminate. But it doesn't matter if your child has a diagnosis or not. A lot of children have different quirks and challenges in life. A diagnosis of KS doesn't define a child. Everyone will experience a diagnosis very differently and the delivery of a diagnosis is different you know the delivery of my two diagnoses were completely different one I was smiling the other I was bawling my eyes out this is terrible because of the delivery why, why does that matter it will still be the same diagnosis whether I say it one way or another you seem to be suggesting it makes a big difference the way that news is delivered. Certainly from my perspective, because the delivery of both, you know, my eldest to the twins, one was, oh, great, he's healthy, he's going to do well. The other was a phone call on a Friday afternoon saying, I'm so sorry, 
you're going to have a really hard life. The twins will probably never run, jump, climb. Very pitiful. And it put me in a very dark place. But I look at the differences because my oldest, I just love baby mum. I really, I just saw him for this beautiful baby. The twins at 14 months, I could just see a lifelong struggle until one day I pulled myself out of that and went, actually, I'm going to prove what that person said is wrong. Why can't they run? Why can't they jump? Why can't they do this? But it took me a long time to wake up and go, look at these gorgeous kids. They can achieve whatever they want in life. And I think if I'd had a prenatal diagnosis telling me to terminate, then I'd Googled. It's a dark place. I think people need to realise that chaos is a massive spectrum because I look at my boys, oldest, doesn't need any additional support in school. And I think people need to know that what's on Google is often the worst case scenario. And can be outdated. Ah, oh, 100%. Some parents get in touch with the association and have decided to terminate, but still are getting in touch with you. So they haven't quite decided, have they? That probably for me has been difficult because how can you change someone's mind around that? And is it your role to change someone's mind? No, well, that's Mm. it. Everyone needs to make their own decisions and everyone has their own struggles in life. I guess I was fortunate enough to put my career on hold and go, right, I'm going to focus on physio, speech, doing this. Not everyone has that means. And I think there's a lot of judgment in that space and we need to let people make that decision. Everyone's different. My kids are so different. You know, what's the struggle for mine may be completely different for others and they may just need to vent and say, I've had a really crap week, I'm not coping, and then they feel a bit better. If you could go back in time and say something to yourself, Anita, when you first learned of their genetic difference at the age of two days old in one case and 13 months old, I think, in the case of the twins, with the benefit of your experience today, what would you say to yourself? I would say they're going to be great. I would say, look, yeah, you've got a few years of, you know, really putting in that early intervention, but they're going to be stars and they're going to do really well. And also I'd say to myself, that's okay to feel like that because I felt very guilty for crying and feeling terrible about their diagnosis and I probably beat myself up over feeling so bad but I'd go back and say you need to grieve and it's okay. The last 10 questions are originally from a popular literary show in France. What is your favourite word? I probably just like hearing the word thank you because I don't think we thank people enough for what they do and being grateful. What is your least favourite word? Least favourite word is a swear word that starts with C and I cannot stand it. (laughs) (laughs) 
one person who I interviewed actually said that was his favorite word. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people I know it is their favorite word, and I think they say it to annoy me. What do you really like? What turns you on? Just sitting and having a really good belly laugh where you're just laughing and laughing until you cry. I just, you know, you feel so good afterwards. What sound do you love? I think I might know the answer to this one. A laughter. <laughs> yeah, I went to, took the boys to Tassie last week to my parents and we all haven't just sat down and laughed so much in a long time and it was great and my oldest said, Mum, why aren't you this happy at home? Because sometimes we forget. What sound do you hate? Yelling and screaming, and I hear it a lot in my house, and I need to walk away sometimes. What is your favourite curse word? It would be shit. I quite like. Sums up a lot of things. <laughs> what, what profession other than yours would you like to attempt or would you have liked to attempt? I have asked myself this question in the past and there's nothing, really. My mum was a nurse and I've just been drawn to that and I love it. What profession would you not like to participate in? Being a chef. I'm a hopeless cook, so I would be terrible as a chef. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear the Almighty say to you when you arrive at the pearly gates? You've done a good job and your boys will be fine without you. That's amazing. Thank you so much, Anita. Thank you for taking time to listen to this interview with Anita Deutsch about her experience raising three boys with an extra X chromosome and her insights gained from years of counseling other parents. As you heard, even children from the same family with the same genetic variation can be very different. The only commonality in the case of Anita's boys seems to be challenges with emotional regulation. But perhaps the single most important takeaway is that even when two children have exactly the same DNA, as is the case with identical twins, a relatively small difference in approach to early age support may have the potential to make a big difference in development and well-being. As Anita observes, the twin whose teacher is focused on nurturing strengths first seems to be enthusiastic and thriving at school, while the one whose teacher is focused on correcting deficits first seems to be demotivated and struggling. As they say, genetics is not the final word. The good news is that this means it is in our power to change outcomes for the better. I hope you liked this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. Please show your support by donating to our podcast today. With your help, we will ensure an easy listening experience so you can access engaging and authoritative information on common genetic diversity in children and adults notified to you weekly in your inbox. Tune in next week for another exciting conversation with a fascinating guest about their experience growing up with chromodiversity. And have a wonderful day.